Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Our breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. Kusia would like to acknowledge the Kulin nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. Yes. Well, yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. You know, a funny thing just happened. Maybe we should let our listeners know. Just in case they hear us huffing and puffing. I left the key the key to the studio at home so we were waiting outside and we waiting for someone else to come and rescue us so <laughs> we just ran in now and she did it at the 11th hour yeah so. but that's what live news is all about yeah, that yeah. Was coming down to the that's wire exciting. i didn't even need this green tea i'm, <laughs> I'm good that was nice um so should we go to a song yes first yes Let's I hope you've got a Sampa song up. Please. Yes. Please. I saw Sampa over the weekend. Um, Did you? At the art house. Yeah, oh. part of the Black Sonic. Where were you? I should have been oh, there, I looked clearly. at you. I said, where is Dora? Do you know what she was doing? Having a four-day-long birthday celebration. Yeah, that's no. true. Well, was it good? How was, no, how was your birthday, please? It was amazing. Yeah. I've been completely and utterly spoilt by everybody. Yes. Yeah, so good. many books to read. I got Bell Hooks and Audrey Lord. Um, I can't remember actually. Yeah. It's one about what do we do with the future? Like, how do we go? Yeah. Where do we go from here? Kind okay. of thing. Nice. And we'll be looking for updates. Yeah. yeah um, updates and borrowing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Lauren got me a Roxanne Gay book. I was so excited. I've got so much reading to do. Girl, oh, you are so lovely. I love <laughs> it. So cute. All right. So we'll listen to Inner Voice by Sampa the Great on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, 8:55 a.m. on your dial. To sing like Sampa. God, she's so incredible. Oh, I love her so mm, much. And I am. Um, you, you were saying in the break that that's that was her sister also singing in that song. Yes. So the person on that song is her sister Mwanji. And that was Mwanji's first performance. Well, she's performed um, when she was back home, but her first in Australia, um, her first live stage performance. And she was in, she was incredible. Oh. She amazing voice, and she kind of resembles um, Sampa. They, they sort of look alike, and and just seeing them two on stage vibing seeing Sampa look over to her sister and you can see the love in her eyes and mm. she's she was so proud because that's her that's her baby sister. She's only like nineteen and and seeing your sister you mm. know, being on stage with you, that's in, I, I can only imagine. That's mm. incredible. So that was wow. nice. Oh, yes. So sick. Yeah. God, I'm in such a love mood to <laughs> gonna cry. Have we already introduced ourselves this morning? None. So Wow. 
We've got Ayan on the panel. What's up? My name's George, and Lauren's here as well. Good morning. The full team. All right, yeah. so I'm going to launch into the news, news headlines for the week. The Guardian has reported that Myanmar's state councillor Aung San Suu Kyi has asked for help from Australian and Southeast Asian countries to address the Rohingya crisis at the Australian-Asian summit in Sydney. The persecution of the Rohingya people is understood by the UN to be genocide, where more than 650,000 Rohingya people have fled to Bangladesh since August to escape violence, murder and rape. So far, Myanmar has denied the allegations of genocide and ethnic cleansing. SBS has reported that Mr Turnbull met with, with Ms Suki in Canberra on Monday to discuss the crisis and that Myanmar is currently undergoing negotiations with Bangladesh regarding the displaced Rohingyas. So, Lauren, you had something you wanted to add to that story. I did. Um, it's been really interesting in the last week or so. Um, some Melbourne lawyers, so among them is um, a former judge, Ron Merkel, he's a QC now, um, and a couple of other human rights defender lawyers um, actually have have attempted um, to launch a prosecution against Aung San Suu Kyi for um, crimes against humanity and genocide. So Australia is a signatory to this treaty that basically says that we can um, prosecute people from anywhere in the world for these um, really significant international crimes, so crimes against humanity, genocide, those kinds of things, um, because the crimes are considered to be universal. And so um, maybe some of our older listeners or massive law nerds like myself. Uh, well, Augustus Pinochet was um, was arrested on this basis in London for torture that he committed in his own country. So mm-hmm. that's how that sort of operates. Um, and so there was an attempt by these lawyers while Aung San Suu Kyi is here to have her arrested for these crimes. Um, but our attorney general has to sign off on the decision and Christian Porter said that he would not be agreeing um, because she is a de facto head of state. She's not technically a head of state, which is, I assume, what the lawyers were trying to argue around. But um, So basically there is this international movement, um, well, certainly in in the Pacific, um, to make Ms. Suki accountable for her, um, I guess, her standing by and then, in effect, enabling this genocide to happen. So, Mm. um, yeah, hopefully... uh, Hopefully Audacity. something happens. Audacity of Australia. Yeah. Audacity of Australia oh. as well. Mm-hmm. I know. Mm-hmm. Cheeky. Yeah, yeah. Can we, can we, can we like slap your wrist as well? Yeah. Do you know can how many times you? Peter What's Dutton that? has been referred to the International Criminal Court though? So many so, yeah. lawyers have written to the ICC asking them to prosecute Dutton, Morrison, Abbott, but the court has to decide to prosecute you. There has oh. to be... And like this is the big criticism of the International Criminal Court is that it only it's only ever prosecuted African leaders, yeah. even though there are people all around the world who deserve to be prosecuted. But anyway, that's a story yeah. for a whole other time. Sorry, Georgie. No, Your no, news not headlines. at all. That's a very <laughs> important addition. That's something that we should mm, be. And the president is Somali. Did you know that of the international? Um, let me double check. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I want to make sure because I saw that trending on um, Somali Twitter. <laughs> So I, I could be wrong, but I, I, I'm so confused. I'm like happy, but also knowing <laughs> that he's part of that system, it's confusing. Sorry, George. That's okay. Do you want me to go to the next story and you can um, 
Yes. Yes, 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 All right, so the next story, um, a big one that's broken over the weekend, uh, Cambridge Analytica is under fire for an alleged data breach of tens of millions of Facebook users. The Observer broke the story about the company, which assists businesses and political parties in changing audience behaviour. Whistleblower and former employee Christopher Wiley assisted the UK academic Alexander Kogan in obtaining the data, which was used to create a program to predict and influence the choices of voters. Investigations into the allegations have been requested by politicians both in the US and UK. Cambridge Analytica has received donations from Trump supporter and donor Robert Mercer. The company has denied any wrongdoing, but Facebook has suspended its account. And actually this morning there was an update on The Guardian, which I will read, that says that uh, the company that there is new allegations of operations with ex-spies to swing election campaigns around the world. Executives from Cambridge Analytica spoke to undercover reporters from Channel 4 News about the dark arts used by the company to help clients, which included entrapping rival candidates in fake bribery stings and hiring, and they use the term, prostitutes uh, to seduce them. So that is a huge story. Next story that I've got is about Afrin. So Turkish forces and the Free Syrian Army have taken the city of Afrin in Syria. Al Jazeera has reported. Kurdish fighters who had previously been in control have evacuated the city. UK-based war monitor the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights has said that at least 150,000 civilians have fled Afrin since last Wednesday. Bekir Bozdag, spokesperson for Turkey's government, has said that the project of building a terrorism corridor and building a terrorist state is over, in reference to the Kurdish Democratic Union Party and its armed wing, YPG, which is also linked to the Kurdish Workers' Party, or PKK. So that's it for news headlines this morning. Thank Thank you, you, Thank you so much. I learned a lot. Um, And now on the line, we have Sally Goldner, who is the Executive Director of Transgender Victoria and a broadcaster on 3CR's Out of the Pan, to talk to us about a very important new resource she's been working on. Good morning, Sally. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Good to be with you. So you've just been involved in creating a new resource called Safeguarding the End of the Rainbow, which is a really beautiful title. Um, Can you tell us about this? Yeah, so what it's about is that we began to find an organisation doing a lot of LGBTI training with um, in ageing and aged care. We began to find that generally a lot of the population don't have their end-of-life planning, which covers wills, power of attorney, medical attorney, but also that, um, you know, um, sort of period between um, death and opening of a will, which I'll come to. Now, there's probably lots of reasons for that, you know, sort of um, people, you know, don't want to think about death, that sort of thing. But then we hone into LGBTI people and we began to find, you know, obviously if someone comes out later in life, you've just finally got on with your life having the relationship or the gender you want and you probably don't think about it a bit, um, don't think about it too much, but um, the thing is, this is what happens. And there's also other issues that we found in particular that people, you know, who didn't have full plans were perhaps having, you know, their funerals would be taken over by family of origin who were not supportive of their um, sense of identity or gender and possibly sex characteristics as well. 
So um, there's, you know, I know I've been to funerals, for example, of a trans person I knew where they were a trans woman, we'll call them Mary, and yet the family took over and called them Fred and he, and it was pretty awful. So we realised the need for this resource and have created it. And um, we had some interesting findings along the way as we you know, did focus groups, etc. too. Hmm. Um, what kind of interesting findings? We thought initially that maybe people just weren't getting around to it, but we did find people were you know, aware of the issue, which was good, but what was stopping them was in a way similar to other issues of service provision that they weren't aware of where to find LGBTI-friendly lawyers. So let's say, for example, a lesbian goes to um, a lawyer and the first question they'll ask is, what's your husband's name or something, mm. or do you have a husband? So it's the same sort of thing that was happening in aged care and it put people off, totally understandably, yeah. So um, we began to work, we are now going to work on that approach of trying to find more LGBTI-friendly lawyers, but I think particularly trans, we, we, you know, we still have at this time in six of the eight states and territories around the country issues of forced divorce, but mm. um, even when that gets fixed, there could be, you know, some there could be ongoing effects from people who have done it and maybe didn't want to. So there's all these sort of LGBTI-specific wrinkles, if you like, like the funerals, like the, um, um, you know, um, finding the, the supportive lawyer, that sort of thing that have made, you know, have made this different and, you know, making sure that, you know, you have the right person you want. And, of course, anyone over 18 can appoint anyone over 18 to be there power of attorney, medical attorney, but also one tip that we've found um, along the way is that if you've got a supportive executor, you've got more chance of getting your wishes about a funeral or having your estate um, sorted out the way you need it um, to happen. So all these sort of, you know, little little tips, um, they're probably, in a one sense, they're glaringly obvious, but for LGBTI people who may face all sorts of discrimination, we have plenty of stories of what people faced, you know, where someone was in a retirement village um, on the 99-year lease and the surviving same-sex partner was denied entry to get the unit cleaned and refurbished and he was in a bit of a a frazzle. And I said, well, what about other units? Oh, anyone comes in, you know, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, well, there's your answer, that is discrimination. Mm. Um, So it's all these sorts of things that we needed to learn so it's, um, you know, we hope it will just add to dignity in the end, at the end of life for LGBTI people. Hmm. And so it's interesting that you mentioned um, that, like, discrimination and those sorts of things, because obviously people would assume that there are legal protections in place um, uh. that would meet... <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but so I'm interested in where the law and policy in Victoria stands on these decisions, so asset inheritance and end-of-life decisions and all of these sorts of things, um, in terms of LGBTQIA plus Victorians, but then also how that looks in practice. So obviously what we're seeing is that the law is one thing and the practice is another, but is there legal safeguards at the moment? Or Yeah, there's increasingly, and obviously with well, the good happenings of 7 December last year, you know, getting marriage equality, that's going to give um, a greater degree of protection as, um, well, you know, more people other than male or female get married and now that those who were married overseas, their 
um, marriage can be recognised. But there is that difference. Um, although, of course, we've always had the um, domestic partnership or to use the older language de facto type of laws that were supportive. But I think you've hit, you know, we've hit, you've hit on, you know, law vis-a-vis practice. The critical thing we find, and it's not just end of life and seniors, but where that a lot of discrimination against LGBTI people is happening more one-on-one where it's harder to verify. Um, you know, we had the situation that emerged in the last two years of a gay male couple where one was in hospital for a life-saving operation, uh, sorry, an operation that had it not worked, he could have died on the operating table. So call him partner A, mm-hmm. um, partner B's got all the paperwork signed um, and is at home and then at the time A's due to come out of the um, anaesthetic rings up and some voice on the phone says, you can't be family, I'm not telling you anything. Um, phone slams. So poor B's at home, stressing out. Mm. In an hour, the shift changes. The new nurse rings up and says, oh, your partner's um, come out of anaesthetic. It's all good. Um, he can't wait to see you. And so the thing is, let's just extrapolate that story a bit. Had they then tried to complain, some, you know, there would have been nothing recorded in the phone call. Mm. Of, even if there was, the nurse would have said, oh, you just misinterpreted it, blah, blah, blah. So this is where things are falling down. And I suppose it needs you know, I think, think solutions to this, uh, you know, strong, um, an organisation really needs to push values and walk the talk, not just have a value statement on the web or something, but really, you know, mention it frequently and make sure people live up to it mm. um, and do training um, on LGBTI so that they understand that these sort of issues happen. A lot of time when we tell these stories in our training, people are sort of in a bit of disbelief that it's happening. So... And that's where things are breaking down between law and practice. Um, but, you know, we've got to have, you know, there's that, I always refer to that Martin Luther King saying the law may not change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. So I think, you know, obviously we've got to have the law in place first. But we'd also hope that some um, of the recommendations of a Victorian Law Reform Commission a report on end of life mm. would be recommended so that you could have legal backing for you know, how you want your funeral run. So if you're a proud, I'll say, rainbow person and you want to have rainbow streamers and rainbow cake for your friends to celebrate your life when you're gone, you can do that and no one can tell you otherwise. You know, those sorts of things get a bit more legal clout. One tip, and I'm not a lawyer, but apparently having a video of yourself doing what you want mm. with your will and end-of-life stuff really can be helpful, you know, and use technology. So mm-hmm. um, there's plenty of things we can do and um, you know all those um, little things that um, can can be done. Yeah. Yeah. And and so are these are these the kinds of things that people can expect to find in your resource? Is this these little tips and tricks as well as the big top yeah, level stuff? Yeah, we've got a lot of legal stuff, and we've got a lot of case studies, um, which will hope, which will make it more practical and easy to read. And so yeah, it's been a lot of good work, a lot of good, and also I do want to thank. A lot of partners involved, the Council of the Ageing, Human Rights Law Centre and Maddox Law, who all worked with us on it, amongst many others. So it's got a good combination of resources from, and also lots of people who came to our focus groups from the LGBTI community to talk about their experiences, which could have been challenging. So mm. um, good on them for doing that. So um, there's a whole heap of um, you know factual stuff in there, and as soon as we... Um, it should go up um, on the web sometime tomorrow 
and watch out. We'll probably put something on Transgender Victoria's Facebook page, but I'll also make sure I get the link through to you and others at 3CR yes, because we'll be um, we do want to, you know, put it on a level, put things on more of a level playing field. Fantastic. Um, sounds like a great resource, and I'm very excited about having a look through it. Thanks so much for joining us, Sally. Pleasure, Lauren. Thanks. So that was Sally Goldner, the Executive Director of Transgender Victoria and a broadcaster on 3CR's Out of the Pan. Join the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice and add your voice to the call for change to refugee policy. Demand Australia's political leaders to abandon the current harsh and unjust policies and provide permanent protection for refugees. Stand with people from all over Melbourne. Demand the evacuation of Manus and Nauru and end the cruelty. Meet at the State Library of Victoria on the 25th of March at 1.30pm. Palm Sunday Walk for Justice is a 3CR supporter. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3CR.org. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing Whitefell has learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. You are... Oh, hello. Welcome back <laughs> to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM on your dial. Um, we are now going to listen to a talk by, yeah, I don't know, I have huge hard eyes at the moment, <laughs> by one of my favourite women, um, Mona Al-Tahawi. Um, she is an Egyptian-born um, Muslim feminist who wrote... Transnational feminist. Transnational feminist. Yeah. Okay, we need to, we'll dissect that yeah. after the talk, I think. Um, I'm always learning about new kinds of feminism from you. <laughs> But Mona um, is very active in intersectional feminism type dialogue on Twitter and on social media. She's written a book called Headscarves and Hymens, and she headed the movement. Um, it was a hashtag called Mosque Me Too, and it was looking at the Me Too movement from the perspective of Muslim women, particularly those who were sexually abused or assaulted within the context of religious 
settings such as um, she talks about her experiences being assaulted doing the Hajj or women who were abused in mosques and that sort of thing. So um, she really puts herself on the line for her politics um, and opens things up for other women to have a voice. And I think she's phenomenal. Um, so we're going to hear a short talk from her called I Am Here to Confuse You from TEDx. I'm a Muslim, I'm a feminist, and I'm here to confuse you. <laughs> the conversation about Muslim women is usually about headscarves and hymens. What's on our heads or not? And what's in between our legs and the price we pay for it? I love confusion because I know that as a Muslim woman, my story is much more than headscarves and hymens. The story I'll tell you today is just my story, but I assure you that there are millions of Muslim women out there who will confuse you just as well as I can. For kick-ass feminist icons, I have a long history to choose from. In the 7th century, there's Khadija, the first Muslim, and Prophet Muhammad's first wife. She was a rich divorcee, a businesswoman who owned her own business, she was 15 years older than him, and she proposed to him. My fondness for younger men has a precedent. <laughs> First wave feminism, you say? I think of a Cairo train station in 1923, where the feminist Hoda Sharari removed her face veil and said this is a thing of the past, decades before anyone was burning her bra. And so today, she must be turning in her grave as so many try to force face veils on women and actually want to have this conversation. I come from a long line of strong women. My paternal grandmother was a teacher, a furious smoker, a fast walker, and a supporter of a soccer team that most of her children detested. <laughs> My maternal grandmother, whose sexually racy jokes outraged her children, was pregnant 14 times. 11 survived. The eldest is my mother, who became the first woman in her family to get a PhD, and she has three children. I am the eldest of those children, and I have chosen to have no children. My, young, my mother's youngest child is my sister, who she had when she was 42, and my sister now is studying for her PhD, and she's dying to have a baby. Now, all that so far confuses enough people. I was born in Egypt, where I belong to my country's Sunni Muslim majority. At the age of seven, my parents moved us to London, where I learned to become a minority, but I also learned how little was expected from Muslim women. My teachers would say, so, did your father bring you here, as if we're all just following him around the world? And I would say, no, actually, both my parents are studying for their PhD. And they would be shocked that my mother kept her maiden name, and I would say, Muslim women keep their maiden name. I loved confusing that. At the age of 15, we moved to Saudi Arabia and my world turned upside down. I learned there was more than one Islam. There was the Islam at home that my parents taught us as equals. My brother and I were brought up as equals. But there was an Islam outside that was very different, that treated women like children who needed men's permission to do everything. And I fell into a deep depression because I didn't know where I fit in between those differences. Two main changes and two main lessons in Saudi Arabia. I began to wear a headscarf and I became a feminist and the two were not mutually exclusive. But on the bookshelves of my university, I discovered feminist Muslim women scholars who nurtured my feminism. I had vowed never to read anything by a Muslim men again. So there were all these Muslim women helping me know that I'm not the walking embodiment of sin. I returned to Egypt and there I learned that Muslim men were not the enemy, especially the young ones. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> 
but I discovered, <laughs> you know I have a weakness for them, but <laughs> I discovered lots of women and male scholars who helped nurture my feminism and more changes, this time about headscarves and hymens. Because I removed my headscarf, it no, no longer represented the Muslim woman that I was becoming. But I became a journalist who became obsessed with female genital mutilation because it smashed my heart to pieces to learn that so many women in my extended family had suffered from this practice. Now, this practice is nothing to do with religion. In Egypt, Muslims and Christians practice genital cutting. It's nothing to do with religion. It's all about hymens because it's about controlling women's sexuality. And to this day, I fight FGM every day. The next big lesson came when I moved to Israel as a Reuters correspondent. And I moved there because I wanted to see Israelis and Palestinians for myself. My big lesson there was that I became a liberal Muslim because I would see my ultra-Orthodox Jewish neighbors and they reminded me of the ultra-Orthodox Saudi Muslims that I knew. And I realized, I realized that Orthodoxy is much kinder to men than to women. And so I became a liberal Muslim. Next chapter in my life was when I moved to the U.S. in 2000. I married an American, but it didn't last very long. <laughs> Not because he's an American, we just didn't get along. <laughs> and so when we got divorced, I decided to move to New York, but I didn't want to just get on a plane and start a new life five hours later. And so I did that most American of things. I got into my car and took a road trip. And I spent 18 days by myself getting to know America. Now, as a Muslim, I've been to Mecca on pilgrimage, but this was my American pilgrimage. And by the time I got to New York City, my reward was a Muslim community of people like me. And, and this was a year after 9-11. And together, me and that Muslim community experienced one of the most moving moments in my life when an American Muslim woman, a scholar of Islam called Amina Wadud, held the first, led the first mixed-gender public prayer. I prayed Friday prayer. I prayed next to a man without my headscarf and on my period. Sacrilege to many, but a delight to me. <laughs> in Kuala Lumpur last year was another moving moment in my life when Muslim women and men from around the world launched a movement called Musawa, which is the, it's the Arabic word which means equality, and it is a global movement for equality and justice in the Muslim family. It was my feminist dream come true. One night, a young British Muslim woman said to me, if I have to choose between Islam and feminism, Islam will win. And the very next day, a young Egyptian Muslim woman said to me, if I have to choose between Islam and feminism, feminism will win. You see, I told you it was confusing, and that's what I love about it. Sometimes the confusion is just about showing up. My sister-in-law, for her too, it's about headscarves and hymens, one of the rare cases. She, is, she wears a headscarf and she's a gynecologist, so it's very much about headscarves and hymens. <laughs> she, for the past five years, was the only woman OBGYN doctor in a tiny town in Ohio. And I would tell her, you are the true jihadi. Because every time your patients watch Fox News and hear about them Muslims and them Arabs, you are the antidote simply by being there. And this summer, many of us showed up to confuse people by going and standing outside the Islamic Community Center near Ground Zero that you know as Park 51. One night, one afternoon rather, a very conservative right-wing cleric or pastor called Bill Keller, not the publisher of the New York Times, but Bill Keller, another one, 
was railing and ranting about Muslim women and do you know what your husband can do to you under your religion? And I said, actually, I'm not married. And I, and I loved confusing him because we had six women standing behind him holding signs up saying peace, love and tolerance. And he was pretending to care about me. So I loved confusing him, especially when I told him, you know what? Jesus loves me too. <laughs> and so now I say I fight the lazy stereotypes of Muslim women and I fight misogyny in my religion through two ways. I'm no fool. I love confusion, but I know that there are violations committed in the name of Islam against women. But that's not my Islam, and Islam belongs to me too. And this is an incredibly exciting time to be a Muslim woman. All those kick-ass women I've told you about, they're my heroes. And so now, I imagine myself standing in a boxing ring, and on one side I've got the misogynists who pretend to be Muslims. On the other side I have people like Bill Keller who pretend to care about me, and I fight them both. But I'm also a bumblebee, because I'm a public speaker and I take my pollen, my ideas, from one place to another and hope that they will blossom into wild and challenging orchards. The pollen might be sweet, but I sting like a bee because like Muhammad Ali, I will not hesitate to knock you out. And confusion is both my right and my left hook. Thank you. So that was a talk done by TEDx with Mona El-Sahawi about feminism and being a Muslim and the different sort of supposed contradictions between the two. So it's a really interesting mm. topic. I think it's, um, it picks up a lot of what Yasmin Abdul-Majid talks about a lot, um, which I guess the parallels are that both have been lambasted for their feminist Islamic views. Um, but that idea of your religion is being your own and your relationship with God is your own as well as, yeah. Mm. Yep. I'm not religious, so I probably shouldn't speak to that anymore. I'm, <laughs> I'm Muslim and I totally, totally agree that it should be something personal mm. and, um, yeah, sexual assault occurs in all communities, mm. any community where patriarchy is a thing. Mm. So even mosques aren't safe. From that, so I think it's important for people like Mona to exist, and I might not always agree with her um, the way she handles it, but I think it's a conversation that needs to be had. Mm-hmm. So we've got Rian um, Hinckley on the line, who is the Nimbus Mobile Art Studio director. Hi, Rian. Hi. How are you going? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good. Good, thanks. Thank you for joining Tuesday Breakfast this morning. That's right, it's great to be here. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about Arts Access Victoria? Sure. Um, so Arts Access Victoria has been around for um, 40 years, or over 40 years now, um, and it's the state's leading uh, arts and disability organisation. Um, it, it works across sort of three major fields. Uh, firstly, advocacy for people with disabilities in the, in the arts sector. Um, it runs arts programmes. Um, like Nimbus, some of them are good programs and some of them are uh, working with artists one-on-one and it has an um, industry development arm which um, provides training for arts organisations and other organisations uh, working with people uh, with disabilities both as uh, audiences and also um, as artists within the organisations. Fantastic. Uh, Reem, would you mind speaking up a little bit? It's a little bit difficult sure. to hear. Thank you. So, sure. And it's right. been around since the 70s, is that right? 
1974, I think, was mm. uh, um, when, when it was first started. Yeah, yeah. And so the Nimbus Mobile Art Studio is—is uh, that has that been—is that being run by Art Access Victoria? Yes, so Nimbus is a um, is a studio based at the Bundora Homestead um, in Bundora, um, and we run it out of a, um, a portable art studio called Nebula, which uh, we had built um, about seven or eight years ago. Well, it's a studio that we can tow around and uh, use for festivals, etc., and uh, run workshops and forums and cinemas and all sorts of things out of it. Um, but, but for the uh, Nimbus studio, it, it stays on the grounds of uh, Bundora Homestead. And we run uh, a weekly program for artists with disabilities. Okay, and and how does the studio better meet the needs of artists with disabilities? Well, uh, firstly, it's designed the, the the space is designed specifically for artists with disabilities. Um, it's portable. It's got its own ramp. It's got it's designed the, the spaces within the studio are designed to uh, enable easy access for chairs, etc. So it's, it's, the space itself is designed. But also the program is designed to um, meet the needs of the artists um, and, and what they want to achieve. So we, we work closely with the homestead, the gallery at the homestead, um, providing um, not only support in the art making, but also uh, advice on uh, creating artist bios and um, uh, preparing works for galleries and preparing their own portfolios so that uh, if an artist wanted to submit a work for a show, um, or, or propose their own exhibition. They've got support from staff within the gallery to do that. Mm. And can, does work get exhibited in the space as well, or is it a space for artists to produce work? We do use it to exhibit in. Um, it, 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 not not a lot. We, we generally use it for creating work. Uh, last Saturday, there was an opening at the Homestead, and we opened the studio as, a, as an open studio, to display work, um, but but generally it's more a making space than a, than a showing space. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. And what developments or changes would you like to see take place in the future in terms of accessibility in the art world? Well, the, the, the whole the whole playing field is sort of changing greatly at the moment with the um, introduction of the NDIS. So that the, all, all the, the disability funding across Australia has changed. A lot, and for some people, it is uh, beneficial, you know, and, and it's and it's proving to enhance their lives and, and provide access to all sorts of things. But for a lot of people, it's just uh, sort of a bureaucratic nightmare. And so, the, the the problem at the moment is trying to find a way through sort of an insurance scheme for people who you know don't understand the language or can't see how that fits into what they want to achieve. And and in particular, I think art doesn't fit. Uh, particularly well into the the language and into what the NDIS, the way the NDIS is worded. So we're sort of having to work around a a system that doesn't really cater for the people who want to be involved in the arts, and and that's a real problem at the moment. Right, so the uh, NDIS isn't currently valuing the arts or incorporating that at all? No, well, the language in particular is very hard for people to understand. You know, there's not like a a section within the NDIS that says this is where you can spend your money on art. You know, it's worded in a very sort of bureaucratic and sort of insurance-themed way. And, th- and that makes it hard for people to know ha- how to spend or how to, how to place the arts within that. Mm. And does the work that some of the artists produce, do they cover political themes like that? Is that an issue that they try to express through their artwork? 
Well, some people do, but, but, but you know, like, like all artists, it's, you know, we leave it entirely up to the artists what they want to work on. Mm. And, and as the as the NDIS at the moment is very new, um, it's, it, people are still sort of discovering what it means to them and, and how to, you know, how to work with it. So, you know, in the Nimbus studio, we haven't so far reached the point where somebody wants to try to work about that, but, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people doing it. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about what kinds of themes some of the artists have been exploring in their work so far? Sure. So there's a, there's a, there's a huge range of work. You know, at the moment there are, uh, I think, six or seven artists in the studio and we're looking to expand that and, and get a few more. Um, but they're working across, uh, there's some um, paintings, you know, and, and visual art uh, drawing, um, there's uh, artists doing uh, photo montage, digital photography. Um, there's some writing going on, some really great writing happening at the moment. Um, so it sort, of, it sort of covers a whole range of things, really. You know, we're not we're not particularly focused on one aspect. Each artist sort of follows their own path. Mm, it sounds fantastic in such a great space. How how yeah, can our great. listeners come and um, see and support the Nimbus Art Studio? Well, we're open. Uh, we, we, we work every Thursday um, from sort of 9 till 3.30 at Thunder Homestead. And the, the gallery is, uh, is open, I think, from 11 to 5. Don't quote me on that, but it's something like that on, on that day. But people are welcome to, to drop by and have a look at what we're doing. And if anyone's interested in um, being involved in the studio, we're open to all artists um, who identify as having disability or, uh, or death or have an experience with mental illness. Um, then they can contact Art Texas Victoria, um, and I'm, I'm happy to speak to them about, you know, what, what's involved. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Reen, for your time this morning. Thank you. So that was Rian Hinckley, who is the Nimbus Mobile Art Studio Director. And so that's located at the Bundura Homestead. Sounds like a really great project and something that I would really love to see at some stage. Are you doing the right thing? Marxism 18 is Australia's biggest radical left-wing conference, happening March 29th to April 1st in Melbourne. The conference will feature founding editor of Jacobin magazine, Bhaskar Sunkara, Australian writer Helen Razor, Palestinian activist Huwaida Araf, and films celebrating 50 years since the struggles of 1968. Join radicals and activists for political discussion in over 100 sessions across four days. Tickets start at $25 and are available at marxismconference.org. Red Flag Press is a 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically Chronically Chilled. Chilled. A program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm.
If you want to hear us slam the atomic industry, then tune into the Radioactive Show on 3CR, 10 a.m. Saturdays. And we're back at Tuesday Brekkie with myself, George, Ayand and Lauren. Uh, just a quick weather update. Mm-hmm. What are we looking at today? Um, we're looking a hot ass day. Uh, hot day. <laughs> Whoa. We're looking hot ass. That's um, true. That too, yes. <laughs> uh, it's going to be 19 with a possible morning shower and it's currently 16.5 degrees. Mm. Oh, okay. So it's not as hot as I thought it would mm-hmm. be. Mm-hmm. Which is good. We can do with a little break. Yeah. yeah. My Some rain. Calm down. Yeah. Mm. Some rain. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to play a track by Stevie Wonder. I got a record, uh, a Stevie Wonder record for my birthday, and there's a great tune in it that I hadn't heard before, and it's called "I Believe." Loving tune. That track is called I Believe When I Fall in Love It Will Be Forever. Thank you for indulging me in that one. So we're going to launch into some alternative news. Yes. My mic is not on, but yes. Yes, we will right after some CSAs. Rumination. 3CR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues Program, featuring information on health and housing services, as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855am. mood when that song comes on. I need to set it as my alarm in the yeah. morning. Oh, that, that is such a good idea. You'd end up hating it. True. I cannot you don't listen to, hate to it. Beyonce's Jealous because it was my alarm mm. for so long. Je- right. I've not heard that song, Jealous. It's from the self-titled album of 2014. Oh, okay. Self-titled. <laughs> she hit us with a self-titled. <laughs> yes. I've had my green tea, you know. <laughs> 
Okay, so it's that time of the morning um, when we talk about everything um, news-related. So I thought we would talk about sun- the sunrise incident. Mm. First, I'll describe, um, I'll quickly run through what happened. And George and Lauren have told me there's an update, and mm. maybe we can discuss the current update yeah. as well. So last week, was it last week? Last I feel like week? early last week. Mm. Early yeah. last week? Okay. So Sunrise had a segment where two white commentators were asked by Samantha Armitage about her opinion regarding David Gillespie's comments in the Courier Mail. David Gillespie is the Assistant Minister for Children and Families, and he spoke to the Courier Mail about child abuse and possibly relaxing the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander child placement principle to allow Indigenous kids to be adopted by white families. So some assumptions here, quick quick assumptions that the kids aren't already being placed with white families, which they are, and that white families don't have the same issues of neglect and that somehow it's only unique to the Indigenous community. Cool. Now, the Aboriginal, for those who don't know, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Child Placement Principle Policy, it's a policy that considers the cultural value and links to community when placing kids in out-of-home care. This principle, by the way, is more of a consideration rather than like a legal doctrine. Mm. A paper in the Australian Institute of Family Studies called Enhancing the Implementation of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Child Placement Principle. Um, It's by Fiona Arnie, Marie Iones, Alwyn Chong, Stuart McDougall and Samantha Parkinson. It's, um, it's a paper that was written in 2015. It estimates that 13% of child protection cases involving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children um, uh, were actually the principle where the principle was actually taken into consideration. So only 13%. So this lets us know that mm. this principle is more something to have at the back of your mind rather than you know something that has to mm. be done right like a guide not a rule exactly yeah. so one of the commentators prue said on the sunrise segment just like the first stolen generation where a lot of children were taken because it was for their well-being we need to do it again oh my god mm. trash mm. trash trash a few days later a protest led by first nation grandmothers of the stolen generation was held outside the Sunrise Studio with protesters standing in front of, you know, those clear windows that look into the studio. Mm. Um, so the, but the protesters were censored when a generic image of the outside studio was put up. So um, that's Sunrise, I guess, censoring um, uh, the protest. So seven spokeswomen came out with a statement that was used by the Sydney Morning Herald Sun's Brody Kamadi in his article, Activists Swamp Sunrise Windows to Protest Aboriginal Adoption Segment. The spokeswoman said, we respect the right to protest as much as we respect the right of free speech. She said, some of the group were holding offensive signage and some began hanging on the window and mouthing obscenities to ensure regulatory compliance and bearing in mind the potential for young children to be watching, the decision was made to utilize a generic backdrop. And writer Nayuki Gori, um, she tweeted this when um, this uh, statement was made. She said, they really do just think of children, don't they, regarding their statement. Oh. So that's, that's, there's a lot to unpack. One, whose children matter. Mm. 
right? Yeah. And that somehow, because as as you know, kids will start asking questions why they're protesting, mm-hmm. and I guess that's a, that's another way of um, appeasing the their uh, their viewers who probably agree with Sunrise because to be a fan of Sunrise, you mm-hmm. must either be watching it to tune out or you must really believe yeah. in a lot of yeah. the stuff that they're the content that they're putting out. So um the updates. What's what's yeah, happened? So I just um just, you know, on Twitter, um and Sunrise have tweeted that this morning they had a special edition of Hot Topics which took a closer look at the issue of child protection, particularly in Indigenous communities. Three panellists who are experts in their field joined Sunrise to discuss. Um, so it's interesting. We uh, we haven't watched it yet. This was just tweeted, um, and we... I don't know. I can't speak for you two, but I don't watch Sunrise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, I love it. I watch it every morning. Hey. <laughs> um, so it's interesting reading the comments that a lot of people seem to... Um, seem to think that this is this was a better balance in terms of reporting, um, but a bit too little too late. Mm-hmm. Um, and who did also, they? Do you, does mm, it say who, who they had? Well, I was thinking we can play a little bit of it if you're interested yeah. to get the intros and stuff. Yep. Yeah. Do we have it all to go? Yeah. Okay. You know it. Sweet. Let's play it. Okay. Child protection, particularly in Indigenous communities. The topic was raised in an article on the front page of the Brisbane's Courier Mail last week, where the Assistant Federal Minister for Children, David Gillespie, suggested he wanted to relax rules around abused Aboriginal children being placed with relatives. Now, we know it's a conversation around Aboriginal children and their removal sparked concern and protest last week. So we're responding to calls by the Aboriginal community to look at the issue with the experts. And we've got the experts this morning. Olga Hadnan in Darwin, James Ward in Cairns and Patricia Turner in Canberra. Good morning to you all. Thanks for joining us this morning. Now, the National Children's Commissioner says more than a third of children in the out-of-home care system where they've been removed from their own home are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. Olga... You've worked in Aboriginal affairs all your life. What's the process for taking a child out of their home? Normally the the process would be a uh, notification followed by investigation and if substantiation of serious harm or abuse, uh, then the likelihood is that young person would be removed from that family. However, what I want to say from the outset is We absolutely believe that the safety and well-being of children is paramount, first and foremost. But secondly, in response to the question of removal of kids, we don't actually believe that that's necessarily the best course of action. Uh, The reason for that being that quite often, uh, with sufficient supports, we would hope that families might be able to continue to care for their children or alternatively extended family. If that's not possible, then there is absolutely no prohibition or restriction on the ability of non-Aboriginal people to care for children, either as foster carers or in permanent adoption. However, we don't see those processes being the solution. We have a child protection system that is absolutely under strain. Yeah, and that is important. The first, I think everyone agrees, the first step should be in extended family or keeping them in their communities. And and that's the best outcome, isn't it, Olga? 
That would definitely be the best outcome. And Koshi, I think the other thing people need to understand is not all communities um, are in this sort of state of crisis or dysfunction that no. sometimes the media might lead us to believe. There is always uh, a level of vulnerability. We acknowledge that. And certainly the biggest problem probably has more to do with family violence, overcrowding and alcohol misuse. Yeah. So if we could deal with some of those sorts of problems, I suspect you'd find that the welfare and well-being of our families would be a whole lot better yeah. off. And, and it's, it's the same in every community. There are, uh, there are real hot spots, but often they aren't a reflection of the, of the general community. Patricia, uh, Patricia Turner, you've worked in Aboriginal affairs for 40 years. The figures show that Indigenous children are seven times more likely as non-Indigenous children to have received child protection services. How do we tackle this over-representation? Well, I think that it's about time government at all levels uh, listened to what our sector has been saying, along with many other people who work uh, with our communities, that um, we need the resources to set up early, family, early intervention family support services that are completely holistic. And uh, in the health field, we would like to have a multidisciplinary team made up of uh, paediatrician, social worker, clinical psycho child psychologist, um, speech pathologist, you know, occupational therapist that can work with children who are highly traumatised and their families. Yep. And these services need to be invested in as a matter of priority. Just like, and we've been saying this to government for years, and it's just falling on deaf ears. So it's the responsibility. Children, uh, there's a... Um, Commonwealth program called uh, Communities for Children. Funding can be diverted from that into Aboriginal uh, hotspots right. around the country. And honestly, we've got 6,000 children in out-of-home care in New South Wales alone. Yep. It is outrageous. Um, because so that is a segment that, um, or part of a segment that was playing on Sunrise on Channel 7 this morning um, following some justified outcry um, about their Sunrise's lack of Indigenous representation when talking about Indigenous issues and mm. um, blatant racism in seeming to be okay with the idea of a repeat of the Stolen Generation. Uh, yep. Anyway, so this morning they've had some, um, some experts on. So we heard from Olga Havnan from the Danila Dilba Health Service in the Northern Territory and Patricia Turner, who is the Chief Executive of NACHO, the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation. So, Miss Journalism Tutor Extraordinaire George Maxwell, <laughs> what do you think? I mean, it's, it looks like they've gone full circle, haven't they? Yeah. You can, I, I, you know, I guess you can speculate that, that with the pressure they have decided to have another conversation with a representative panel that are actually informed. And as I mentioned before, we played that clip. When you actually fact-check a lot of the information they brought in in the first conversation, a lot of it was wrong. Mm. So, that, yeah, it's interesting to see that they are actually getting the facts right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it, it's also good to see that we can create that change. Mm. So um, everyone, because usually when you're on Twitter and you hear people say, what's the point, you know, what, what's the point of expressing their anger? Don't be triggered by their um, comments and a, you can't help that. Like it's yeah. impossible. But also 
it's so important to use our voice when we can and to also um, hold people accountable. Yeah. Because if we hadn't, do you think Sunrise mm. would have said? No. Like, and how many people might have heard those statements, which, you know, in the really bland kind of just like morning show model, mm-hmm. people would have heard those statements completely out of context. And I would say that there are probably a lot of Australians who wouldn't quite realize why things like that are so damaging or why they're so dangerous and why those ideas can very quickly turn into a brand new stolen generation. Mm. Um, or, well, I mean, it continues, but you know what I, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, so it's important to point that out because otherwise these ideas are allowed to become just a regular part of the conversation. And you're mm. right. Like accountability is so important. Mm. Yep. And so good to see, as you mentioned uh, that they actually have done something about it. Yeah, it really is quite um, mm. exciting in terms of the the power of social media. Mm. I still think they're trash, but that's my personal... Oh, they're never going to not be trash. Ad- like yeah. <laughs> ...opinion, and it's so annoying that this doesn't come, n- like, naturally to them. That yes. Yep. Once again, we're doing the labour, we're having to tell them, this is not this is not appropriate. Like, who are the, these people are getting paid all this money... Um, to, 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 to do what? Like, shouldn't, this, isn't this something that is like not just ethical, but it's, it's standard. It's like yes. a standard thing to do. Like. Yeah, and it's, it's like because they're commercial, you know, their imperatives are different. If their focus is on making money, then they're going to be trying to reflect potentially what the public opinion might be. And if the public opinion is racist, then they're going to have a panel that is racist and talks mm. about issues. Um, in a way that reflects those opinions. So it's interesting when you actually look at the agenda of different Mm. news outlets. And next time, would love to have someone, um, uh, a First Nation um, uh, voice on on the show. We did reach out, but time scheduling um, didn't permit permit us. Um, So hopefully we'll try to get someone um, who can discuss the issue more broadly and... um, whose voice actually is needed in this equation. Mm. But j- j- just a quick article, and we'll put it up on uh, on our Facebook page. It's by um, Amy McGuire, mm. and it's a Guardian piece, and it's called Saving Their Children Are the Three Most Dangerous Words Uttered by White People. So, yeah, perfect. Yep. So, um, yeah, so just have a... Um, a look out for that article and just I think you should also be following Amy McGuire on Twitter Absolutely. just because she's, she's, she's a badass and <laughs> <laughs> she's really thoughtful and she's very sharp and she doesn't excuse white supremacy where sometimes, you know, there's the pressure to sort of turn it down, turn it make down, it palatable. And she does not do that mm-hmm. either and and neither does new yuka who is yeah there's this fantastic generation yeah. of writers at the moment nakia louis and just indigenous x generally if you have twitter um or if you like to read your news through the guardian subscribe to indigenous mm-hmm. x like yeah um so we are now about to go to an interview with bibi love who is the director of the michael kirby center for public health and human rights at the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash University. Thanks for joining us this morning, Bibi. Or should I call you Beatrice? Is that... that Bibi. Bibi. Okay, fantastic. Um, So, you're at the Kirby Centre at Monash at the moment, and I just looked this up after I got in touch with you. Um, 
this place is amazing. Could you just tell us quickly a little bit about the Kirby Centre? Uh, well, we have uh, lots of different projects that focus on the relationship between health and human rights in various different ways. Uh, we have programs in Myanmar and India, obviously the restorative justice program that you're going to talk uh, with us with me rather today, and uh, a health justice partnership that we created with Maurice Blackburn at the Alfred Hospital that provides free legal advice to patients who have a uh, legal problem related to their reason for admission, amongst other things that we do. Amazing. I'm a big fan of this idea. <laughs> so um, you mentioned the restorative justice prog- project um, that you're working on in collaboration with SACASA, the Southeastern Centre Against Sexual Assault. Um, could you tell us about the project? Well, this is a pilot of uh, restorative justice, which um, the meaning will become obvious when I start to describe the project in a little bit more detail. What um, happens is that uh, people who have been subject to sexual violence are able to seek a conference or some sort of interaction with the person that either perpetrated the violence or uh, some other person or persons who they regard as having caused them harm in relation to that violence in order to uh, get a greater sense of well-being. So uh, it is a justice uh, interaction in the sense that what we hope is that it gives victims a voice, they're able to participate, they're able to seek from the perpetrator or the person that caused them harm, uh, some sort of explanation as to why they did what they did uh, and to have that person hear them. So that enables them to have a justice experience that is different from what a court provides because in a court process, the victim is largely unable to say what they want to say and to have any sense of agency Mm. over the process. So that, in quick summary, is what we're doing with SACASA. I think that's really important. Um, As I mentioned to you, I I work as well with survivors of sexual assault and sexual abuse, and that disempowerment is really obvious in a legal setting um, that people feel powerless but also um, that there should be options that can empower them and that can make them have that agency and take control. So I think this this idea is really, um, it sounds like it could be really beneficial. Um, have you seen it? Does it work well? Is this something that you've tested before and is, is a positive thing? Well, This pilot has been going now for about three years and I would say it has produced 
a positive outcome. Because I'm not actually facilitating any of the um, cases. My role is as a researcher. So I can, um, I can speak from the vantage point of having interviewed the parties to the process and having asked them about what they think. And uh, in the findings, really, there's only been one case where the uh, outcome was unsatisfactory and even then, uh, the participants said that they thought this process was a good process and it ought to be available to others. What is really striking to me is of the perpetrators that I've spoken with. They also agree that um, the process is worthwhile. Indeed, one of them... <coughs> more than one, in fact, said uh, they, they hadn't realised, even though they'd had all the papers explaining it, that it was an experimental process. They thought it was just a normal thing mm. and uh, generally available to all people. So it seems to me that uh, there is a significant place for this sort of process I guess the other interesting point to mention there is that uh, this process has been used by people who have also had experience of the criminal justice system. Uh, in fact, they've gone through it, a conviction has been obtained, but it has still left them feeling dissatisfied. And this performs a different function. Mm. And... Is it something that um, that the survivor of the abuse decides to, or the assault decides that they want to do, and then the offender has to get on board, or can the offender nominate, like elect to do this, or how does that that dynamic work? It's victim driven, mm-hmm. so uh, the the victim uh, initiates the request. And then the facilitator will contact whomever the victim wishes to have the conference with. And it's not always the perpetrator. It can be uh, members of the family. It could be other members of the family who the victim um, has questions of or uh, in one instance... um, uh, a mother who had erected a tombstone to the father and the tombstone said the loved father and the victim wanted that removed. It, it really can be uh, very responsive to what the victim wants in ways that the traditional criminal justice system uh, simply can't fulfil. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I feel like that's in the name, isn't it? That restorative idea of what, outside of this traditional idea of adversarial justice, what will begin to restore some semblance of empowerment or healing or something within you, um, and how can we achieve that? And 
Do you think that there are situations in which the restorative justice model is more appropriate, for example, if there are, if it is a, a family situation in which the assault occurred or something like that? Uh, more, you mean more appropriate than criminal justice? Yeah, I, I mean, so, look, I work with survivors of historical child abuse, um, and I mm. think that for a lot of these clients, uh, we do, in some occasions, we do a sort of restorative justice aspect of, of our process, but also for a lot of people, it's it's kind of gone too far, it's been too long, um, and a lot of the time, the offender is dead. Uh, so I wonder if, if perhaps in a situation where um, it was a recent assault or um, it happened within a family setting, or is, is there situations where you would where you would think that this was a really good idea more than in others? Uh, yes, but um, it's, it's totally different to, to I think, where um, what you have in mind. Where I think <laughs> it works um, really well is in the context of recent assault that the criminal justice system wouldn't take on. So right. there would there would be um, uh, uh, sexual violence where the uh, victim and perpetrator know each other, but there is um, no corroborating evidence or. <laughs> And uh, the ability to prove that violence beyond reasonable doubt is uh, its going to be a challenge. But, um, so, you know, in those cases, the victim would make a report, the police would um, consider the matter and say, look, uh, we don't think... This is going to work in court and actually possibly for good reason. And uh, then the victim leaves with nothing. Mm. And I think in those cases, it can work very well. And, um, and we've had a couple of those cases. And uh, in one in one of them, the victim simply wanted the uh, perpetrator to hear her. That's all she wanted. And in another, uh, what she wanted to know was what was going through the perpetrator's mind. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so for those cases that the criminal justice system is not well designed for, I think um, they work really well in a restorative justice setting. And uh, for complex family violence cases, uh where there is a lot to sort out within the family, not merely between victim and offender, 
uh, but really between uh, the extended family mm. in a setting where there is access to psychologists and social workers such as Sikaza, so that um, you have people with a range of skills able to provide counselling and support and restorative justice, that can work well. So mm. we have uh, both ends of the spectrum there. That's really interesting. Not at all what I expected you were going to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> can I ask? What did you think I was going to say? No, I just... Um, I suppose when circles of support and accountability and restorative justice and these kind of ideas were first um, first brought to my knowledge, it was maybe, oh goodness, when did I start law school? A long time ago. And, um, and it seemed like the big idea at the time was primarily for um, intra-family abuse. So um, parents or grandparents or siblings or whatever and it was restorative justice was being used more as a way to keep families together um, and and kind of to mend those fractured relationships within families so I I had in my head that that was um, that was the way it was going to go but I, I think um, that was obviously really short-sighted and thank you for, um, for opening my eyes um, so if survivors wanted wanted to get involved with this project or were interested in following the progress uh, if it's something that they think they may be interested in the future how how can we keep on top of it or contact Sakasa? uh well obviously um uh anybody who's interested could contact us or could contact Sakasa. uh but uh fairly soon we will be uh making uh, available at first to the funders and then um, more broadly the findings of this study and uh, and that way people can learn about uh, what we have found and um, but uh, at this point there is uh, nothing that is publicly available because mm -hmm. the research is still ongoing. Okay, well, we will definitely keep on top of it on this end and we'll keep our, our listeners updated. Um, thank you so very much for joining us this morning, Bibi, and all the best with the pilot. I hope it's very successful. Thank you very much. Thanks. And so for any listeners who that segment may have raised some issues for, um, you can call the Sexual Assault Crisis Line if you're in Victoria on 1800 806 292. That's 1800 806 or you could call WIRE, the Women's Information and Referral Exchange, on 1300 134 130. And we just heard from Bibi Loff, the director of the Michael Kirby Centre for Public Health and Human Rights at Monash University. That was a great interview. She is a very interesting woman. So if we've got time, I'm just going to go through a few community announcements before we finish. Mm. The first one I think we mentioned last week is the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice this Saturday, the 20th, Sunday, Sunday, sorry, the 25th of March at the State Library. It starts at 2 p.m. And the second event is the National Day of Action being organised by SEED uh, for not fracking the Northern Territory. So that's on Wednesday, the 21st of March. And in Melbourne, it will be held from 10 to 11 a.m. I wish it wasn't 10 to 11 on a work day. Because I love SEED yeah. and I would love to go. Yeah. 
So First Nations people and all Australians are coming together to call for a ban on fracking in the Northern Territory. So a good event to look out for. Mm-hmm. And I will post um, after the show two campaigns that are currently being run by the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. One is... Um, uh, so two two actions. One is a survey about your experiences with Work for the Doll. It's a two-minute survey. All the information that you give um, will be put into um, leaflets. It will be pretty much like a database for Work for the Doll and will be handed out to, um, I guess, mem- people interested in joining the Australian Union, um, Australian Unemployed Workers Union. And the other is a campaign where folks who call Centrelink know the struggles with, you know, being able, fight, like, reaching someone to speak to. Mm-hmm. And also um, the lines being always busy. So that's another thing that's running, and it's pretty much asking people, if you can't reach Centrelink, then there's a number um, that you can call to speak to the Minister of... Um, Social services. Social services, that's mm. it. And just basically ask him, what's up? What's happening? Why can't, <laughs> why isn't anyone picking up uh, the Centrelink line? And then ask him to transfer the call. Yeah, All that information. That. Yeah. Ask him to transfer your call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Since you're committed to um, assisting us. And um, after, up next is the um, accent of women with the amazing Giselle. <laughs> 